One of the things we all hate to do is to stumble. If you're walking somewhere and suddenly you trip on something and you, you, you're on your way down, somewhere in, in the process, if you have time to think about it, you're looking around to see who's noticing as, as you go through that experience. And, and I, I'm sure I'm not the, the only pastor who's ever had bad dreams that included the idea of someday coming up these stairs and tripping and falling flat on my face. Um, we've all had those experiences, you know, and, and, and normally you do it and, and you stop and you look back with disdain at whatever it was that caused you to trip just to convey to everybody around you that it was something else's fault and not yours. Um, but if we do stumble, we hope it's followed by, you know, at least a smooth save, you know, at least we don't go all the way down to the ground. Um, because in those cases, then embarrassment can be the least of our concerns. Well, the New Testament book of Second Peter is a warning meant for followers of Christ to keep them from stumbling and falling. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. There's a difference, we understand it, between stumbling and falling. Peter really has falling in view. There are many things that can trip up believers. There's temptations, there's worldly distractions, there's wrong teachings. There's all sorts of things that can cause us to stumble and in fact, James 3.2 says we all stumble in many ways. And so as believers, we don't walk perfectly. We still face temptations and trials and things that cause us to stumble. But Peter is really trying to keep his readers from something that is far more serious. And verse 11 really gives us the, the, the nature of that because it makes it clear that Peter's not merely focused on sort of small bumps in the road of our spiritual journey. He's talking about people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but who stumble then over some kind of false teaching, some kind of divergent philosophy, some kind of temptation into sin, and then they fall in such a way as to show that their faith in Jesus Christ was really not genuine. They fall away in the sense of not then ultimately, as he describes it, entering the kingdom. Major cause for stumbling is what occupies 2 Peter chapter 2. This is our introduction to the book, and chapter 2 really is the heart of 2 Peter, and, and it is talking about the, the, the reality of false teaching. It is one of the, the most scathing rebukes of, of false teaching is 2 Peter chapter 2, and, and it describes these people as false teachers who secretly bring in destructive heresies. It goes on to say that they exploit people with false words, and they blaspheme the truth, and they are objects of God's wrath. Those who teach lies and error about Jesus Christ, who lead people away from faith in Jesus Christ and away from the truth of the gospel, cause people to stumble and fall in Satan's lies, and the consequences of that fall are disastrous. Our God is gracious, and he is mighty, and he is able to rescue stumbling people. The, the benediction that we often quote is from the end of the little book of Jude. Jude 24 says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. 
Jude uses the same word as Peter does, except to say that by God's grace, you can be spared from that stumbling. God can catch you. God can rescue you. But some who stumble, some who claimed faith in Jesus Christ, completely fall into rebellion. They prove that their claim of faith was spurious, and for them it is an awful fall. Somehow they ended up on the slippery slope of disbelieving parts of God's word and and starting down a path of rejecting God's truth, or they found a Jesus they like better, or a gospel that's more inclusive, something that holds a message that, that, that resonates more with them than the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's the fall Peter is troubled by, and that's what he's writing about here in 2 Peter, writing to encourage believers. Peter knew about stumbling, right? We know it from Peter's story. It is Peter who three times on the night before Jesus Christ is crucified, denies even knowing Jesus Christ. Peter knew what it was like to stand before godless accusers and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, God, God, may he curse me here that, that if I'm lying, I do not know this Jesus. Peter knew what it was to stumble. Peter also knew what it was to be rescued by God, to have Jesus come and to to bring forgiveness to him. As Peter writes this letter, there is this wave of false teaching that's happening, twisting Jesus's words. It it seems from chapter three, primarily uh, dismissing Jesus as being Lord, certainly as the one who is going to return for his people, because some of the the arguments are that that Jesus isn't coming back. And so he, he addresses that here. Peter fears that, that people will follow these false teachers. So he writes this short letter. Chapter 2, middle of the book, is to rebuke the false teaching. Chapter 3, he, he is saying that one of the big lies of the false teachers is that Jesus is not coming back. And so in chapter 3, he speaks to that. The false teachers are saying, where is your Jesus? You keep saying that he's returning, and every day goes the same as every other day, and he's not coming back, and you've put all your faith in him. And so Peter confronts that, and that's why he then teaches about Jesus's return and the day of the Lord, 2 Peter 3, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, talking about creation, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What sort of people ought we to be as we live waiting for the return of Jesus Christ? That's been the dominant theme in this whole series. It started with 2 Thessalonians and now moves into 2 Peter, living in the last days, waiting for Jesus. And so today, though, we're back at the beginning of 2 Peter. We're going to start with 2 Peter chapter 1, and there's no mention of false teaching yet in chapter 1. There's allusions to it. It's certainly behind the scenes in everything he writes, but it is an important theme. And here in chapter 1, what he does is he takes his readers back to explore, to look at the miracle of salvation, to say, look, see what God has done. Marvel at this. And as you marvel at this and contemplate this, it will help to keep you from stumbling. As you meditate on the truth and as you know the God who saved you, and you draw near to him, it will keep you from falling. That's what we're going to see this morning. We've already jumped ahead and seen verses 10 and 11. He's writing to protect Christians from stumbling and then falling into sin and error. But how did he get there? So we'll start start of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It is 
sort of an explanation of gifts that God has given to his people, the, the, the ways that God has not only saved us, but equips us to not fall. And then in chapters five through nine, the focus shifts to what we do with those gifts from God, what our responsibility is in terms of how we respond to them. The Lord sovereignly equips, but we are called to live differently in light of them and to be obedient. And together, God's gifts and our use of them go hand in hand in protecting us from falling. So 2 Peter 1 Let's just read the first two verses to start with. Here's the, the greeting first from the author. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We're used to this guy being referred to as Peter or Simon Peter. This is one of the rare instances. The only other place that this is used, this Simeon Peter, is in Acts 15, 14. It's really just more of a, of a Jewish way of, of saying his name. Peter then identifies himself, two titles. First one is servant of Jesus Christ, common New Testament label. It, it is to stress the fact that I, I, I don't merely serve Jesus, but I belong to Jesus. Those who are trusting in Jesus Christ are servants of Jesus Christ. The Greek culture understood the word doulos to be a, a slave, one who is possessed by, who is owned by, because Jesus Christ has taken us and he has bought us through his own sacrifice on the cross. And so we belong to him as servants. But then Peter sets himself apart when he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ, He's going to be dealing with false teaching, and so there's, there's some matters of authority here. He's going to have to confront other people who are claiming to come in the name of Jesus Christ, and so he is identifying himself as one who has seen the risen Christ, and that's the term apostle throughout the New Testament, speaks of one who has seen the risen Savior and is now speaking on his behalf. In verse 1, he gets to the first of God's gifts to his people when it says, believers have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. I'm going to suggest to you, and especially if you're taking notes in your little journal there, that the word obtained is not particularly helpful here. Most translations say received, to those who have received a faith equal to ours. And I think received is probably the right translation here. The Greek word that Peter uses actually has understanding within the culture of relating to the casting of lots. And so what, what I mean by that is think back to the story prior to the birth of Jesus and when Zechariah, the priest, is called to burn incense in the temple, he receives that privilege by a lot that falls his way. It's sort of a, a way of seeking God's providence and, and sort of throwing the names in and putting them out and Zechariah's comes up. And so by God's providence, it comes out by a lot, casting of lots. Um, the soldiers at the at the cross of Jesus in a much more crude way or casting lots to see who will take his garment. The point here in verse one is not that Peter believes his readers have obtained salvation, but rather that salvation has come to them by God's good providence. It was as if Lot fell their way. The Lot came their way and they received this faith. One Greek scholar says this about the very word Peter uses here. Even when there is no casting of lots, the attainment is not by one's own effort or as a result of one's own exertions, but is like ripe fruit falling into one's lap. I think that's a helpful picture. It is not the idea of believers of, of obtaining faith in Christ, sort of the 
proverbial picture of the drowning man who reaches out for the life preserver. Our faith is rather a gift from God in that we receive it. He pours it down as, as fruit falling in one's lap. And this faith, this trust we have in Jesus Christ, his point here is, is the same for all believers. Even though he's identified himself as an apostle, he doesn't have something more special. His interactions with Jesus don't, don't make him anything different in terms of salvation, regardless of class or the place where people live. There is no human merit involved here. It is a gift of faith in Jesus Christ. And in fact, he says, it's on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, equal standing with ours by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's making the point that because Jesus Christ alone is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, it is his privilege to be able to give this gift. He is able to do that, and so he is doing so. I would just might make a note there at the end of verse 1. It's an important statement when he says, Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are places where he, he clearly distinguishes between God the Father and God the Son. In fact, he'll do that in, in the very next verse. But in this point, the, the way the grammar is structured, when he says the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he is very much calling Jesus God. He is describing Jesus Christ as God, as God incarnate. And so this is just one of the clear statements we have in the New Testament. But, and, and that speaks to his righteousness. It is, he's not just an ordinary man who is God-like, but because he is God in flesh, he is perfectly righteous and able to now bestow this gift of faith on believers, on those who he has called to himself. So verse 2 goes on and says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You have it. You already have received his grace because you've been brought into his family. You have peace because of that, but now may it be multiplied to you. May you, may you receive it more abundantly through, he says, this knowledge in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This one is a reference to the Father and the Son. And he's beginning a theme here that we're going to see throughout this early section of 2 Peter, and that is you must know God. You must, in a, in a growing and intimate way, learn about who God is and what he has done and, and who God the Son is in Jesus Christ and what he has done because you cannot receive, you cannot expect to receive an abundance of grace and peace if you don't know the giver of grace and peace, the one who is perfect in that. You cannot experience God's peace or his grace apart from him. You must know him. And to intimately know him, you must be growing in the knowledge of him. And as you do, you experience it. Now he goes on in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. These two verses are so important and so foundational to, to everything that follows what he's saying here in verses 3 and 4. First thing to, to know, just a little bit of Greek grammar. We've said this before. Word order was important in the Greek language. The, the way we underline an exclamation point and bold and all of those sorts of things to highlight a word 
In the Greeks, you, you used word order and you made, if you wanted to emphasize something, it went first in the sentence or, or very nearly first. And really, the, the way this actually begins in the Greek is since all things, since everything, because or as everything has been granted to you by his divine power. Peter is stressing everything. All things are given to God's people in order to do what he's about to explain. This is all granted by God. And so that should then lead us to the question of, well, well, for what? what? What is the purpose in this? So he's granted us this. What is this equipping for, these all things? And Peter's answer is life and godliness. I would submit to you that these two go together, that he's not separating two different categories, godliness and then some would say eternal life, that he's provided eternal life and godliness. I, that's not a, necessarily a bad argument, but I would argue that he's really taking these together the words life and godliness, to mean he's given you everything to live a godly life. He has given you, equipped you in every way so that you can live in a way that pleases him. Everything has been supplied to us through God's power to live a godly life. You are equipped to live in a way to please Jesus Christ because God has done that. He's supplied everything. And so you, you talk about sufficiency and need and, and, and wondering why God doesn't give you this or provide that, God's word says to followers of Jesus Christ, whatever you face, whatever circumstance you're in, I'm not promising material prosperity. I'm not promising that you have everything for perfect health, but I am promising that whatever the circumstances, you are equipped to live a life that pleases God. You are equipped now to respond to every circumstance following the, the pattern of Jesus Christ. And that promise is on the basis of the power of Christ, his divine power, and he's looking back to Christ who he's just talked of, the power of Christ through the knowledge of God. You see that? that, that, that some form of the word know, K-N-O-W, is found seven times in the book of 2 Peter. We saw it in verse two. We see it again in verse three. We're gonna see it again in the passage as we go on from here. It's because at least in some sense, it's because of what's at stake here, this issue of false teaching. And, and people are being subjected to things to say that what you think you know about God, well, that may not be true. We, we know something else, and so you need to acquire different knowledge. False teaching causes people to question what they know about God. False teaching causes people to to question the, the legitimacy, the authority of the word of God, to begin to undermine the word and to, to doubt God's word. Our knowledge of God must be rooted in truth, not just my truth, not subjective truth, but what God has revealed as being his truth. It's through our knowledge of God that we're empowered to obey him. If you, if you think about this going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and the first temptation to sin, false teaching almost always works on the claim of something new, something you didn't know before, something that's, that, that you can find out. I mean, that was the whole pitch to Eve, was simply eat of this, and you will know as much as he knows. You will have incredible knowledge of, of all of the same things. 
False teaching constantly appeals to this sort of vain human desire to know more than God, to know something different than what God has said. Peter will, will slam that when we get to chapter 2 in terms of directly confronting that lie, but what he wants to do here is reinforce this truth. There is no secret path to a good life. There is no sort of underground wisdom and that God is withholding and you've got to find it in some mysterious way and, and hope that you arrive at it. God, by his power, has revealed himself to you and I so that we can know him and by knowing him we can live a godly life. We can experience peace and contentment and grace. Follower of Christ, the ability to live a contented life with joy and peace, even in the most painful of circumstances, is truly available to you now. And how is that? It is by believing that God in his power wants you to know him, wants you to know Jesus Christ, wants you to train your mind to think on his truth and what he has revealed. So there's, there's no excuse for believers to not live a godly life. Again, James is right. We all stumble in many ways, but there is great forgiveness in our confession of sin to God. But there is this great hope that we have all we need as we grow in the knowledge of him, as we learn from the life of Christ and learn how it is that we've been called to walk. God will supply what we need. And that's what then connects verses 3 and 4. As we increasingly think on Christ. And what he describes then in end of verse 3 is his own glory and excellence. As we, as we meditate, just as we were doing here in our singing, as we meditate on the, the majesty and the perfection and the holiness of Jesus Christ, then verse 4 says, we receive, he says, the benefits of his precious and very great promises. Peter doesn't specify for us. We'd love for him to have said something else here as to, well, Peter, what exactly are these promises you're talking about? He doesn't fully identify them, but they have something to do with our lives today. And the reason we know that is because the end of verse 4 speaks of these promises, the outcome of these promises, allowing us to share in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world. And so these what God has promised to his people enables us to share in his nature. So put this together. Think as we are meditating on, as we are thinking on, as we are growing in the knowledge of the majesty and the holiness and the excellence of our Savior Jesus Christ, what we should be gaining from that is a deeper relationship with him, a deeper knowledge of him so that we can walk after him so that we can be more like him, so that we can imitate him. We are participating in the divine nature. As I reflect on the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ, what the truths of scripture tell me is I am joined to him. That by the working of the Holy Spirit at salvation, I am now in Christ and his spirit is dwelling in me. And so as I dwell on that, I realize I, I actually share in the divine nature. And the, the aim then of that is to draw me away from the corruption of the world. That draws me away from the lure of the evils of the world. As I embrace union with Christ, I'm further empowered to resist the world's evil desires. Is Jesus becoming greater to you? As you think on Jesus Christ, as you consider your life, have you seen just a growing desire to, to know him, to follow him? 
Is Jesus more and more satisfying to you? That as you compare all of the things that the world says, in this is peace and joy. Do you find that really in Jesus, in your relationship with him and his love for you and his saving power, that in that is ultimate satisfaction? If not, the warning here is that the world's evil desires will continue to lay hold, will continue to entice and corrupt. Now, if you're wondering, okay, how do I do this? How do I... How do I think more deeply about Jesus? Here's Peter's answer, verse 5. He, he goes on. Let's read verses 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Follow what Peter's doing here. Here is, here is all that God has done. Here is how he has saved you, provided for you. Here's his grace toward you. Here's his goodness toward you. Here's the faith that you have received from him. Now he's taking it to say, now here's your responsibility. In light of these good gifts that have been stewarded to you as treasures, here's what you and I are called to. God has supplied the power to live godly lives. We've read that. And so then verse 5 says, for this very reason, make every effort to then cultivate these things in your life. You see the connection here. God's power and God's spirit are necessary. We're not, we're not jumping over here as most world religions do and say, just do this, just perform, just be virtuous, just be good. And if you do all that, then you'll win God, you'll, you'll earn God's approval. We have to start over here where Peter does and say, he has given you this faith. He is multiplying his grace and peace to you. He is pouring out the knowledge of you. He is giving you his, his righteousness in order that you would now make every effort to live in godliness, so that now you, in response to that, would do everything in your power to live in a way that demonstrates gratitude for these good gifts. We know we need God's power and his spirit, but that never absolves us of the responsibility on, on this side to actually work hard and make every effort to pursue personal godliness. One theologian writes this, he says, as is typical in the New Testament, grace precedes demand. The priority of grace, however, does not cancel out strenuous moral effort. It's a great way to think about it, that, that grace comes first, but there is then the imperative. There is the command now to supplement, to, to bring these attributes to life within you. This, that word supplement in verse 5 was used in the secular marketplace of the, the first century to describe providing something at one's own expense. The, the, the point being, when he says supplement, is these things don't just happen. They don't happen without participation. There is expense involved. There is an expending of one's effort involved in growth in these things. Now, these eight attributes that he gives here, there's a temptation at least to read this as sort of a chain, sort of a stair step, go from one to the next one to the next one. It's really not meant that way. It's, it's an ordinary New Testament list with this exception. He brackets this list with faith and with love. There's, there's, there's the bookends that we must understand. None of this godliness, 
virtue, self-control happens apart from faith. It's just sort of attempts at moral behavior on, on our own part apart from faith. All of this requires trusting in God, believing in salvation from God through Jesus Christ, trusting him to empower, on us, uh, empower us. It's constant work, so we are relying on faith. The list ends with love, the, the agape word in the New Testament. It ends with what really is the goal in all of this. I'm not developing self-control or godliness or growing in knowledge so that I can just be smarter and, and people recognize me as a very self-disciplined person. I'm doing it because I love God, because my, my love for him is seeking to emulate the love of the son toward the father when the son says, not my will, but yours. I, I'm here to execute your will, to do your will. So let's walk through the list. That's the bookends. Let's walk through the other six. Virtue, some translations would say goodness, excellence. Same word as verse three, um, where it said that we are called to copy, imitate the moral excellence of our God. It, it, it's simply saying we are to walk in holiness. We are to be a people who care about purity. And, and we see holiness in our God, and therefore we are seeking to imitate that. And the Spirit's empowering us to do so. We need to pursue that in our lives. Knowledge is next. Again, this is now the third time we've seen some form of the word to know, the knowledge. Um, the point again is that in this life, we never reach complete knowledge. We may get degrees. We may pass certifications. We may take Bible studies and finish those studies. We've never arrived. We've never gotten to the point where we can say, now I know it all. You know that. And that's why he's including it in this list that we would constantly be pursuing knowing God better, not content with where we are. Verse six, next attribute is self-control. Greek, Greek culture of Paul's day had great esteem for self-control, the ability to subject one's desires, one's fleshly passions, pleasures, to subject them to higher purposes. Greek culture was filled with a myriad of gods, but there was an understanding of the meaning of self-control in the sense that it meant submission to God, to whoever you believed your God was. It was the idea of, of, of subjecting my, my purposes and my desires to him. What we are being called to here in self-control is submitting our own desires and our own pleasures to the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-control is not simply denying myself that nighttime snack after dinner that I really shouldn't have. That, that, that's sort of an earthly form of self-control. But what he's talking about here is submitting my own pleasures and longings to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. So self-control. The next attribute is steadfastness. You could also say endurance, perseverance. The ability to stand firm, even when there is spiritual onslaught, when the enemy is attacking and we are tempted to yield or to despair in some way. Peter understood this from personal experience, and he's writing to believers who will face this same opposition. And his urging to them is, stand firm. Know what you believe, grow in the knowledge of him, and remain firmly committed to that truth. You will need to resolve. God will protect you, God is good, and God is working in you, but you also need to be firm and, and standing firm on what you believe. Godliness. I said it before within the Greek culture, many gods, but the idea was that there was still some kind of authority. And for believers, again, this is pointing back to verse three, we have been equipped for godliness. 
We walk with reverence toward God. We, we see God as our ultimate authority, as King and Lord, and our ways are subject to His, and so we are expending effort to live a life that is like that of our Lord, that is like that of Jesus Christ. And then brotherly affection and love. You've heard both of these terms, right? The um, Philadelphia, the brotherly sort of love, and then the agape love. And so he's really sort of distinguishing here in terms of horizontal affection for brothers, serving brothers, caring for those around us, um, just, just being generally kind and, and hospitable and, and meeting needs of those around us. And then the last one is this uniquely Christ-like sacrificial love for God and for others that's modeled by Jesus Christ. So it's not simply showing care and affection for the brethren. It is a life marked by active sacrifice for the cause of Jesus Christ because we love God, because we understand that he loved us first and we are responding in love. And that love ultimately is last because that's the aim of all of this. We're nurturing all of these attributes because of the love that has been poured out to us on the cross. And we now are responding to that and seeking to love God and love neighbor. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter ends the list of attributes saying two things about these attributes. One is they must be present in the life of a believer. These things are expectations in the life of a believer. This is fruit that should be a part of virtue and godliness and self-control. All of this should be present in the life of a believer. But what else? They should be increasing. They should be growing. They should not be static. We should not be of the point of view that I got all I need of this, that I got the fullness of all this, um, that, that when I became a believer, I, I, I knew everything I needed to know, and I'm fine at that point. Because he says there's a serious warning in all of this that ties back to the theme of knowledge. If you think back again to verse 3, how are we equipped to live godly lives? Through our knowledge of him. So what he's saying is if, if you profess faith in Christ, you are saying that you know Jesus Christ. You are saying that you have come to know Jesus as Savior. You have put your faith in him and linked your life to him. He says, so if you profess faith in Christ and yet you are not growing more like Jesus Christ, then your knowledge of Jesus is useless. And what you're saying you know about Jesus is ineffective, as he says there. It's not, it's not yielding any kind of fruit. It, it's as if you are blind and you are not seeing all that God has done for you and equipped you in order to live differently, in order to live like Christ. And essentially, you're acting like one who is unsaved, who is who's not even giving thought to the incredible truth of the gospel that we receive forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ. Imagine that. Imagine responding to the gospel, hearing this good news and saying you believe Jesus has forgiven your sins through his death on the cross and that he is risen again, but instead of desiring to be like him, you instead turn back to the life you lived before the gospel. And that's what Peter's confronting here and saying, how can that be? How can you, how, how can you go on to this kind of ineffective sort of use of this knowledge? It is mocking what he did on the cross for you. Verse eight, that, that Greek word for increasing. 
having much or more than enough of. Increasing. We're to be growing in these things. We're not, this, this isn't a, a striving for perfection. We are not on this side of eternity. But it is a progress of growth. It is our being more and more increasingly like Christ and less and less like the world when it comes to faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and godliness, steadfastness, brotherly love. We, we don't arrive. We're, he's, he's emphasizing the fact that we are not content We've not maxed out on self-control. If I pick anyone out of this list that automatically gets at all of us, it's the self-control one, right? Because I don't think any of us here could honestly say, I have self-control down. You can't rile me up. We know that. And, and that's his point here is God has equipped you now to nurture within you an ongoing, growing self-control so that even as I look at Doug from years ago, I can hopefully see in him now a, a greater sense of self-control, a greater sense of being under the mastery of the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to him in circumstances that I might have reacted to poorly before. So think about your character. Is it reflecting these qualities as you think of this list that Peter has given? Do, do people see evidence of these things? more and, and more in your life? Do they see you being more like Jesus? Is it evident that your knowledge of Jesus is, is growing because it's more of speaking like him and acting like him that other people are experiencing as they encounter you? Ultimately, it all leads back to verses 10 and 11 where we started. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love the fact that Peter says brothers here. Because it's tempting after this opening passage to say, oof, he's being a little strong with them and, and almost skeptical at times. And he says, therefore, brothers, the assumption is, I know that you are trusting in Jesus Christ. And, and I'm just exhorting you now to hold fast to what you've been taught and to grow. And he goes on to say, if we are diligently making the effort to grow in our knowledge of Jesus and to be more like Jesus, then what that should be doing is giving you assurance. That's when he speaks of that to confirm your calling and election. He's saying I, you should more and more be sure about your faith in Jesus Christ, that it is resting in him. And the reason that is, is because we clearly see when, when these attributes are, are growing in our lives, what we clearly see is not that we are somehow becoming smarter, better people, but we are seeing the evidence of God's spirit at work in us. We are seeing that as these fruits grow in us, that is just further evidence of what God has done in saving me, that he has is, he is drawn me to himself, and now as I grow in godliness and self-control, it's evidence of union with Jesus Christ because it's more of Christ at work in me and living through me. So God's election of me, God's choosing of me to be his own, God's calling of me to receive this gift of faith in Christ, all of that helps to make all the more sure that his persistent work is ongoing to grow me into the image of Christ. Isn't it generally true, to go back to where I started, that when we stumble, it usually has something to do with the way we're walking. I mean, we can, we can blame the upraised sidewalk and all of that, but usually at some level, the stumbling has something to do with I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't really looking at the time, and I, I, it, it, or it happened at night, 
And it was, at, at my age, it was the dog's toy. For some of you, it's the kid's toy that you stumble on and, and have that wonderful feeling when you step on it. But it's usually because I wasn't looking, I was walking in the dark, or I was distracted by something else. I was looking all around because there was something else that just seemed so wildly interesting at that point, and I stumbled, and I didn't see the path that was right there in front of me. And friends, that's, that's what it is for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Our good and gracious God has laid out a path and has wonderfully given us his word and his spirit as faithful guides to walk us on that path, to, to show us what it means to walk like Jesus Christ. And then he's blessed us with community. He's put us around other believers so that we don't have to walk the path alone so that we can have help from other brothers and sisters who can say, there's something there that's going to trip you if you keep walking that way. And so he's given us these good gifts. But when I ignore them, when I choose to walk in darkness, when I forget my need for his power, when I, when I don't meditate on who Jesus is and what he's done or what it means to be joined by him or what it means to, to walk by his spirit, then that path can quickly become dim. And not only does it become dim, but the little side paths, the distracting paths of the world and its philosophies and its teachings and its ideas and its temptations all seem to be beckoning and all seem to be causing me ways of stumbling. There will be paths toward false teaching or secular philosophies that will look intriguing. That, that screen on my phone will capture my mind and my imagination and even my heart with images and ideas that seem enlightening and good. And as Satan says to Eve, don't you want to know all this other stuff? Reading the word, yeah, you can do that on Sunday, but there's all this other stuff to know and to appreciate. Our calling is first and foremost to know God, to grow in the knowledge of what he has done and how he has rescued us and how he has given us life and how he has equipped us to live in a way that we would not stumble, but that we would continue to increasingly reflect his glory and majesty to the people around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word, that which Peter wrote in a letter to brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago, to a particular circumstance in time when there were concerns that he was seeing amongst the body, how because that is your spirit, in fact, we, we're going to see it next week, Lord, in Second Peter, how that is your spirit moving him along and giving him this understanding so that he is ultimately speaking your truth and so that we have these timeless truths now to re remind us and reinforce to us that it is through the knowledge of you that you have equipped us to experience life in a way that is pleasing to you. Father, I pray for anyone listening this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ, a Savior, who has not yet embraced that, that very first gift that precious gift of life that comes because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, sinless one, died on the cross to bear the sins and the punishment due for those sins in our place. And by his death and by his resurrection, there is life and forgiveness. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would make that first gift 
to be abundantly clear that you would turn the hearts of those who are not trusting in Christ and cause today to be the day when they would embrace this sweet gift of salvation, of faith in Christ. And Lord, for your children, for my brothers and sisters and myself, Lord, we pray that we are challenged and convicted by your word, but also very much aware of what you say at the very beginning, this is all by your divine power. We are not left to strive for these attributes by our own doing, in our own strength, but you, by your divine power, are equipping us to pursue godliness and knowledge and self-control and virtue. Thank you for that. Help us this week to to be honest before you and to confess where there are areas that we have been convicted about, where we have set aside this notion of making every effort. Lord, thank you that you forgive and you strengthen your people. And so we pray that this week you would continually remind us that we have the ability to make every effort because you are supplying it by your grace. And so may we do that as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.